Well, good afternoon. You all look as though the sun's in your eye. Very angelic. <laughs> um, it is great to see you all on this sunny day. Uh, welcome. We, we are now well on in our studies in Ephesians into the practical part of this letter we've been looking at. And last time, as per usual, we didn't finish. So we're in a bit of a twilight zone between what we would have finished last week kind of before we can start this week. Um, let me show you what I mean. I gave you an overview uh, a couple of weeks ago of where we're going to go. Um, three things in chapters 4 and 5. We can grow together, we can change together, and we can enjoy God together. And then we went and not finished the part about changing. So we're somewhere in the, kind of, in the middle of 2 and 3, between changing and enjoying. Um, so I'm going to attempt to save that twilight uh, zone by saying that is really absolutely perfect because in a way that is exactly what Paul's driving at here. Um, the fact that we haven't finished is not necessarily a bad thing. Real character change is inseparably linked to joy. And so the fact that we're between two and three is not necessarily a bad thing. No one in the history of the world has ever changed, really, really, truly, deeply, unless they wanted to. You can force people to do things. You can coerce people to do things. But real change has to come from inside and be grounded somehow in joy. And it's worth saying that at the start, isn't it? Christianity is not based on fear, coercion, bribery, um, force. You, you can't force people to be followers of Jesus. Christians don't go out into the world with swords and guns and hold them to people's heads and say, submit to Christ or we'll kill you. Because that is just superficial, isn't it? There's no real internal change. We've seen this in the way Paul writes the letter as a whole because the first half of the book is all about what God has done. And we even called that part of the book Captivated. And we've tried to see in what Paul says there something of the great glory of what God has done for people in this world. The second half of the book, chapter 4, 5 and 6, is really all about us. And how, how can we respond to what God has done appropriately? Um, and that, that is how Christianity works. God is always the initiator and we humans are always responding to what God has already done for us. We're not climbing a ladder up to God. God has climbed down the ladder and come to us and we're responding to what he's done. I came across a great quote this week um, and I think it, maybe I just thought it was a great quote but I think I'm trying to squeeze it into this because I thought it was a great quote. So here we go. I think it linked. Um, here's a quote, three parts to it. Religion says, earn your life. Secular society says, 
create your life. What's going on next? Oh, imagine your seat. <laughs> Jesus says, my life for your life. Isn't that interesting? Because of Jesus, Christians are not trying to earn something. We're not trying to create something. The gospel is really about us receiving something. Christianity starts with God being generous and giving us his very self. And it's more than that even because the reality is that we all in different ways and in different degrees have turned away from him to go our own way whatever that might look like for us in particular God has always been good we're the ones that have moved so God is not just generous he's generous to people who don't deserve it I, I, I think that's both an encouragement and an offence to people isn't it because some of us want to go, hang on a minute, I'm not. But those of us who know that we've turned away from God, what an amazing piece of good news that God doesn't treat us as we deserve to be treated, but he comes to seek those who are lost and tired and far from him in order to bring us back. Jesus says, my life for your life. Jesus lays down his life to save ours. He is our substitute, our rescuer. He's the great doctor, our redeemer, our saviour. So Paul's logic here is that that is both captivating and motivating. And we've got into chapter 4. Last week we looked at this little diagram. I called it the great big bridge of change. Um, the reason for that is that in chapter 4, it'd be great if you've got your Bible open today because we're going to look at some of these verses. In verse 22, Paul says, You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created by God in true righteousness and holiness. We were just remarking on the fact that there's two things for us to do. Put off and put on. And in the middle there, there's something that happens to us. To be made new. The whole aim of the Christian gospel is to stimulate us to think differently. To be renewed in our attitude. So that we will be willing to put some things off and to put other things on. I want you to see that there's joy in this. The reason I wanted to include the idea of joy being motivating is because right in the middle of all this ethical stuff, this seems like a whole load of ethics from Paul. He, we'll get into that today. But bubbling away under the surface is a note of happiness and joy and vibrancy. Look at what he says at the end of... Um, this section in chapter 5, verse 18, 19, 
in, be filled with the Spirit, he says, verse 19, speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. What a phrase that is. Make music in your heart to the Lord. If that's not a happy sentence, I don't know what is. I, some, you know, people who are happy, they walk down the street and they're whistling away. Paul says to these Christians in Ephesus, make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Does, it, does Paul strike you as a happy man? I mean, he, you know, he's been stoned a few times, he's been shipwrecked a few times, he, he, he's, he's had a lot of controversy in his life. And yet he says here, he's making music. Do you remember Paul and Silas when they were thrown into prison in Philippi? And there was a tremor, an earthquake, and the, 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 the jailer thought all the prisoners were going to escape. He was ready to fall on his sword and kill himself. Paul and Silas, at midnight, in the stops, probably with rats screwing around and damp, what are they doing? Singing hymns, making music in their hearts to the God they love and treasure. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The jailer says, what must I do to be set? What can I do to have a slice of what you've got? <laughs> the jailer can't believe it. Who are these people who are so full of joy? Look as well at chapter 5 and verse 4. Paul there, we're not going to touch on this too much today, but Paul there talks about language. Um, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. That's another example of putting off something, putting on something. I once met an ex-miner who'd become a Christian. He, he was a bit of a... He was, he was a bit of a druggie, really. He, he, he had all kinds of problems with drugs. I don't, he, he used to go down the pit stoned on, on drugs. Dangerous. And when he became a Christian, all his life, every other word had been an F word. And it was a real issue for him in his Christian life. And the thing that made the difference for him, he told me... The thing that stopped it coming out of his mouth was when he stopped thinking in swear words. <laughs> what, what an amazing thing that was. He, he said, even in my thoughts I was swearing to myself. And as soon as I stopped thinking in swear words, it kind of just stopped coming out of my mouth. This, this um, it's not just about language. What Paul's saying is, he, he, he's kind of saying, your, your language shouldn't be crass, crude, cynical. You, you're Christians now. Your heart should be full of thanksgiving to God. Paul's contrast here is between different sources of behaviour. The old you, the old person, is in the dark, being corrupted, stumbling around, unhappy. But well, that isn't the new person. The new person is the source of all that's good and wholesome. Paul is saying, don't be this.
be who God has created you now to be. And Paul's point here with the language thing is that what comes out of our mouth, really, is the overflow of what our hearts are full of. When you're glad, your speech will be thankful. Is that not true? When you're cynical, your speech will be miserable. I'm reminded of an illustration that we sometimes use with the children when we're doing kids' work. Um, a few years ago, some of us went to Habersage. Um, I, th- I think we did a walk, and it was, I think it was our Ben's 18th, and we had a meal in the evening in Habersage. And I, I was looking for it. I took it in the, in the town square in Habersage. They've got an old village pump. And I actually took a picture of it. I was looking for it to show you, but I couldn't find it. So you know the old village pumps, cast iron, big handle. You didn't have a tap in your house, you know. You'd go into the village green with your bucket and you'd, and you'd pull, pull, pump the water. The illustration that we sometimes use with the kids is, imagine that old-fashioned village pump. And there's a gr- great consternation in the village because all of a sudden, the water has gone orange rusty stinky water coming out of the pump so the parish council and the village meet together and they're like you know what we're going to do about this pump it's like everyone's got a cup of tea no washing so they decide to paint the pump so they they get the local DIY man to come and they basically paint the pump nice shiny red colour the pump's fine now everyone they'll make it over the line and what comes out rusty water and that, so then they say, well, that didn't work. T- tell people to pump a bit harder. <laughs> so people come out, they're really putting their elbow grease into it. You can't, they, they put, the, the kids get that. The, the, the illustration is that you can't paint the outside and you can't just try harder. The problem is the inside of the pump is mucky. So when you pump, what comes out is rubbish. It makes no difference what the outside of the pump is like. I I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. That's exactly what the gospel does. Christianity isn't a superficial paint job. It isn't telling people to try harder. God actually takes the old pump out and puts the new pump in. So when you pump handle, good things come out instead of rusty, stinky stuff. One of the great promises in the Old Testament for God's people is found in the Old Testament prophetic book of Ezekiel. And God says to the people through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26. You don't need to turn to it because I've written it down here to save you a job. God said to them, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that an amazing promise? God comes to them and says, what's coming out of you is mucky. The problem is, you you don't need a repair job. You need a transplant. I'll give you a new heart. 
So there's joy here. Secondly, very quickly, there's also some effort here. For Paul, it isn't enough just to put off. This is not like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. With joy, there's a putting off, and he's always urging them to put something else on. In other words, it's not enough to stop doing what's not right. In the gospel, it's crucial to actually do what is right. You can't say to Paul, or to God, more importantly, actually, I'm alright, I've never murdered anyone. God's question would be, but did you love them? That, that you, when people live that kind of way, they, they let themselves, I thought, we all do it. I've never murdered anyone. But did you love them? That's what put, you, you can put one thing off, but have you put the other thing on? The gospel is always aiming at displacing the bad stuff with good stuff. Christianity always says you're saved from something to something else. It's not a vacuum. The way Paul approaches this here, he, there's joy here, but it, it, Paul almost sees human nature as like a wild horse to tame. He sees human nature as unruly. It needs taming and calming. And it takes time and focus and discipline. It doesn't happen by accident. Paul is saying to them, you, you were taught that this, this is an ongoing battle. There's joy in it, but you need to work at putting things off and putting things on and being renewed. Can I, can I just say this? Our culture often says that going with the flow equals freedom. Be who you are. Let it all hang out. That, 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 that's the kind of cry of our model. No one can stop you. Anyone tries to stop you, they're being judgmental. Don't listen to them. Choose your friends carefully. If anybody tries to stop you being you, unfriend them. Let it, let it go with the flow. That isn't freedom. And certainly, as Christian believers, we, we, we should never be excusing poor behaviour by saying, I just can't help it. It's the way I am. Love me or hate me. I'm just being me. That, that, that isn't where Paul's going here, is it? Paul says, that's not the way you were taught. Christ has saved you from all that. Now, you need to put some effort in, put off the old and put on the new. Be who you now are. And thirdly, very quickly, this togetherness here. I want you to remember here that this is not just individual. All of these commands, and we'll see this as we go through today, they're all to do with fostering community, unity, togetherness. All of the things Paul says here are about rooting out the kind of poisons that pollute relationships so that unity, peace, goodness can flourish. God calls people to relate to him 
And then he calls us to relate to one another. And as we've seen in Ephesians, Paul's images that we're, we're like bricks. All different. But God takes the bricks and he builds a beautiful building out of those bricks that God himself can dwell within. So the church of Jesus is not a building physically. It is people who are forgiven and who love one another and who have unity and purpose together. So we're going to get into verse 25 and onwards. And I want to, well, first of all, I want to show you four things that destroy communities. Because I think this is the point of what Paul's saying here. Everything he says here is aimed at fostering a sense of community. So, what are the four things? I was really hoping they'd all begin by the same letter, you know, because I've got like OCD about that when I'm preaching. I just couldn't quite do it. So afterwards, you could, if you if you think you could help, let me know because that would be great. Three of them begin with D, and one of them begins with M. What's that all about? So here's the first one: dishonesty, a lack of authenticity. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he says, in the light of everything he said about the great bridge of change, he he actually says here, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour. Why? Because we're all members of one body. He's doing exactly what he said there, isn't he? Put the one thing off, put the other thing on. It's not enough not to tell lies. You've got to put on telling the truth honesty authenticity the truth is that you're not we we are not in competition with one another Paul says here the the reason he gives is we're, we're all members of one body you're not on different sides you fight the same fight you have the same struggle no community no team no group of any people can survive for long if people within the group are living a lie if there's pretense deception Relationships can't really survive. That's Paul's kind of motivation. When trust is broken, communities begin to disintegrate, don't they? One of the great dangers in churches is the sense that we often have of trying to give the impression of knowing more than we do or maybe our standard of holiness being bigger than it really is. I think the issue is that what we crave is the approval of other people, isn't it? We really want other people to like us. We want to fit in. And sometimes we crave approval so much 
that were willing to be dishonest and pretend in order to get the approval that we long for. So being untruthful is not just about telling porkies. Where people talk about white lies and it's only a little lie. Paul isn't really talking about that. What he's talking about is the desires that underlie our desires. What we're doing when we tell porkies, we're doing that because we want something. Approval, affirmation, popularity in some way. And so we pretend, we exaggerate sometimes. How does joy speak into that? Well, if, if we as Christian believers work at remembering that actually God loves me, Christ knows me, he died for me, I don't need to be overly anxious about my status. I can relax a little and not stress over what other people think. I don't need to pretend or put some kind of face on in the hope that people will like me more. So actually dealing with the heart issue underneath the falsehood actually helps the falsehood to dissipate. Put off and put on and be made new is what Paul says. Second thing that can cause damage in communities is disappointment. Um, perhaps this is one of the deepest causes of friction right here. Um, <laughs> it's not fair. Do you see what happened there? The disappointment that leads to a kind of bitterness. Paul gives another reason here that is also related to the whole group. He says in verse 26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. What Paul's saying there is, as a group of Christian believers, when we're disappointed about something and we allow that sense of bitterness to fester, what we're actually doing is open up a little crack that the devil himself comes in, drives a massive wedge, gets a seven pound hour and goes, (coughs) and before you know it, the whole group is shattering. The root of it is disappointment. This is the little crack in the community. I was reading one story about one church where they, they had a massive split and, and, and it actually came down to something that had happened between two people 25 years ago. For, for somebody, somebody even maybe sat in the wrong seat and there were words said and it developed into a family feud and 25 years later the church actually divided over a different issue but the root of it was something that happened one Sunday once 25 years ago between two people in your anger do not sin it says here do not let the sun go down while you are still angry 25 years later it's still festering the sun's gone down how many years is that 
How many sunsets is that? The little voice inside that tells you that you deserve more. You ought not to stand for it. It's so unfair. Poor me. This, in a way, is the opposite of striving to be popular. Telling lies and exaggerating so that people like us. This is the opposite thing. This is more about hypersensitivity to being slighted in some way. Did you see what they just said? What do they mean by that? And suddenly, the hackles are up. There's disappointment there. And obviously, when other people are angry in this way, they're just being bad-tempered. When I'm angry in this way, it's righteous indignation. <laughs> when everyone else is angry, they're just bad-tempered people. But when I feel that rising, obviously, I'm right. And the other person's wrong. How subtle human nature is. Paul, did you notice in the Bible there that it was in quotation marks, that little quote, in your anger do not sin. If, if you've got a church Bible, there's a little footnote there, and it goes back to a psalm in the Old Testament. Maybe we could turn to it. Psalm 4. Um, this is a psalm of David. Um, greatest king in the Old Testament. The one who killed Goliath. Um, the whole point of this psalm is that David's having a raw deal. This is the, Psalm 4 is the song of a man who has been treated very unfairly. Look at verse 2. How long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame? People are skitting him. People are undermining him. People are saying things about him that are not true. He's having a hard time. It's not fair. It seems like other people are bragging of, of their success and sneering at him. I take that from verse 7. David actually says you filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound it's almost like someone said have you seen our crops mate they're way bigger than yours you loser and he, and he has to kind of speak to his own heart to reinvigorate himself look, look at the things he calls to mind in this psalm as people are mocking him number one he remembers that God hears his prayers. He says that at the end of verse 3. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Isn't that an encouragement when no one else is listening? Or when other people are mocking you or undermining you or you feel like you're having a hard time? Isn't it good to know that you can go home, shut the door and you can speak to God and know that the creator of the universe condescends to hear your cries. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Amazing. Secondly, there is 
a real and greater joy in his intimacy with God. He's not just being sarcastic in verse 7. Who can show us any good? Verse 6. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy. What, what is he saying there? He's saying that, he, he, it's, it's a metaphor. He's saying that his relationship with God, it's almost like sunlight. When God shines on him, it actually makes him feel near to God. And the, and the mocking of others kind of becomes less painful because he knows intimacy with God. Which would he choose? He could choose, I'm, I'm going to smash these people over here because this matters to me more than that does. But in his heart, what matters to him is intimacy with God. And thirdly, by the end, look at what he says at the end in verse 8. He says that he can sleep in peace. Isn't that the issue sometimes? can't believe what they said to me today. Tomorrow, I'm going to sort this out tomorrow. They're going to get. Do you, you find it hard to go to sleep sometimes because that kind of thing is going on? When he reminds himself of who he is and whose he is, he says, I'll lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let them do their worst. I'm going to knock some Zeds back because what they say doesn't matter compared to what you say, Lord. Can you see what David's doing there? He, this is real. It's painful. He isn't being unrealistic. But he says there in verse 4, in your anger do not sin. He's talking to himself. He knows that disappointment that leads to bitterness, that leads to anger, that leads to volatility, all of that kind of stuff is not appropriate for him. In your anger, do not sin. And that takes us back to Ephesians. Paul's, I don't know, he must have read Psalm 4 in his quiet time that day for it to just like fall off his pen like that. In your anger, do not sin. And the time scale is an antidote to brooding and stewing, isn't it? Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't go to sleep thinking, it doesn't matter. It does matter. If it isn't dealt with, it will fester. It might fester for 25 years. The set, what Paul's saying is, sort it out and do it quick. Because if you don't, it will slowly destroy you from the inside out. Not dealing with disappointment promptly gives the devil himself a chance to sow division. So this is a, it's a preventative measure, isn't it? For the community. Here's the one that began with them. See if you can think of it. Or you could say this and make it bigger with me. I'll be very grateful. Materialism. Materialism. This is a great example of putting off and putting off. Look at um, verse 27. No, no 20, 28, sorry. Need a magnifying glass there. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, 
but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. In other words, put this off, put something else on. This is about stuff. This is about jealousy and greed. The essence of thieving is taking shortcuts, isn't it? I I, I want stuff, but I don't really want to work for it, so I'm just going to nick someone else's stuff who has worked for it. That's not a good thing. You understand that? These people understand that. This is a shortcut. One writer I came across gave a brilliant comment on this, and he said, if, if a thief tries to stop stealing, he's technically just a thief who's in between burglary jobs. But Paul goes further than that and says, it's not enough to stop stealing. What you need to do now, with Christ's help, is do something useful. The old selfishness has to go and be replaced by something new. One writer says, the ingenuity and effort devoted to theft are now to be given to honest labour. The thief is to become a philanthropist. Big word that means generous. As the illegal taking of the old way of life is replaced by the generous giving of the new. Paul says something very important about work here though. You, you might be thinking, well I've never stolen anything from anyone. But Paul says something very important about work here as well. We tend to think that the reason we work is to get stuff. That's not what Paul says here. He must work doing something useful with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with those in need. His motive here is not a profit motive. His motive here is a community motive. This has been a big thing politically, this, hasn't it, in the last few weeks? And this ought to speak to all of us, some of you younger ones, maybe. Early careers, developing goals, and the world will tell you that having more stuff will make you happy. Work hard, make as much money as you can, buy stuff. That's the dream. But that isn't what Paul says. His attitude is, I'd love to have a job so I can be generous. What, what, that is a different attitude, isn't it? I really want a job because when I've got money, I'll be able to give it away. What kind of, who, who, who says that? He's not a miser who wants to hoard all his stuff and get rich, but a giver who wants to relieve people in need. This this is how it always is with God. God said to Abraham in the Old Testament, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Think of your life as a great big basket. God throws things into it. Why? So you can keep it in a cave? God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. What I want is for you then to take that blessing and give it away. That is how it always is with God. This was the attitude of Jesus. Everything his father gave him, he gives it away to others. So, I want to suggest that selfishness about our stuff is something that can destroy community. Jealousy, selfishness, a a lack of charity, 
He who's been stealing must steal no longer. Put off and put on. Oh man, we need to be quick. Discouraging talk. See, it began with D and T. Uh, destructive talk. Uh, this issue returns to the subject of speech a second time. Verse 29. These are all things that destroy community. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Before, in relation to speech, it was about what's true and false. Now, in relation to speech, it's about what is constructive and destructive. Do you get the the difference? Here, the old person is always pulling down complaining, criticising, dividing and insinuating. The new person, on the other hand, assumes the best, not the worst, and works to build people up, not tear them down. This is about community again, the power that words have to cause devastation. Let me just read you a quote here. One one writer said this, the trouble with families nowadays is that no one answers questions anymore. Every time in a family someone asks a question, all the other people respond with another question. And one, one, uh, this writer noticed that a few days earlier, his 16-year-old daughter had yelled down from upstairs, has anyone seen my new sweater? The father yelled back, You mean that one that cost 20 quid? The sister replied, You mean that one you won't let me wear? (laughs) The grandmother replied, You mean the one with the low neckline? The mother grumbled, You mean the one that has to be washed by hand in cold water every week? She asked a question and everybody else in the house replied with a question that was pouring cold water. I'll find it myself. (laughs) The writer says, we need to listen and hear, to sense and understand, especially in the place where we're best known and our lives are most intricately intertwined. Maybe if we practised there, we'd be able to carry on that style of relationship in the rest of life. Are your words encouraging or discouraging? In, in my own quiet times, I've been reading through the book of Judges and I've been very struck by the story of Gideon. You know the first part of the story, how Gideon goes, God, God like, um, tells him to go and fight the Midianites he turns up with so many thousand men God whittles it down to 300 and then Gideon goes into battle with 300 men against this massive army and they win and they chase all the kind of baddies down the road and then I th- is it Judges chapter 8 I, I never wrote down this reference Judges chapter 8 the Ephraimites come to Gideon and said why didn't you tell us what you were doing why didn't you tell us what we were doing He's just gone and smashed the enemy's face in and brought peace. And all they, they, no one said thank you. 
No one like went, thanks mate for sorting that out for us. We've been oppressed for the last ten years and you've just dealt a fatal blow to the enemy. What was their first thought? Why do you tell us your plans? How many times has that happened in our workplaces, in churches? The first thing we think is not the good that's been done, but what about me? What about me? No one told me. That was exactly what the Ephraimites said to Gideon. And as a leader, he, he had the good grace and humility to say, hang on a minute, when the enemy started running down the road, God handed this particular group into your hand. You played a part in winning. And it says in Judges chapter 8, their resentment subsided. Very gracious leader to take that kind of criticism and diffuse it. Why? Gideon wasn't letting any unwholesome talk come out of his mouth, but only what was useful for building up. I I hesitate to use personal illustrations, but I I, I won't mention any names here. Our dear friend, he was here the other day speaking at our ladies' event. People wake it up from that. Well, I know you can. I'm thinking more about the talk being on the internet. She's experienced this in the past few weeks. We spent some time with her over this weekend. Her husband is a pastor in a difficult place. Smallish church, not dissimilar to our own in many ways. They've seen many encouragements. But she said the last two weeks have been the hardest in their ministry so far. One guy, in his frustration, sent an email to all of the people who attended the church. And in the email he said, I'm just writing to you all to let you know I'm leaving. I don't like the preaching. In fact, I don't like the preacher. And by the way, I found another church that's a really great church. See you. The following Sunday, eight people were not in church because they'd gone to the other church with this guy who sent the email. To their credit, some of them came back. But what a devastating thing for a minister, for a pastor who is pouring out his life in service for others and for someone to the power. You, you can spend years building something. It takes one word to destroy it, doesn't it? In seconds. The issue here is not, Paul is not saying that we should ignore problems or that we shouldn't have the courage to deal with things. The issue here is one of attitude, isn't it? It is the desire. Is our desire to want to break and destroy or to build up in love? That, that, that's the issue that's at stake. Paul's concern here then is for the gospel to so transform our lives that it leads to unity and purpose and love. Here are four things that would destroy community. Let me say also that it is a dangerous thing to mess with community because God cares about people in community. Why do I say that? Look with me at the next verse. 
verse 30. Paul there says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Here's an extra motivation. When things go wrong, it makes God sad. Paul says here, put off this, put on this, put off this, put on this, put off this, put on this. And he sums it all up by saying, and do not make God sad. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It tells us something important about the Holy Spirit, that he's not a thing or an it or a force. The Holy Spirit is God, personal. You can grieve him. Paul's point here is that the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. Why? To create and build community. Everything that Paul's been talking about is the work of God's Spirit. When we take a sledgehammer to that and try and break it, what are we doing? We're grieving the very Spirit who's at work in our midst. I've sometimes felt this in a working environment when we seek to set a tone that's cooperative and encouraging and energised and occasionally some person comes into that environment who brings a destructive influence maybe for some of the reasons we've talked about it affects the whole team it puts everyone on edge And as we've said, it takes a lot of effort to build something good. It takes a moment to wreck it. It is incredible, isn't it, that verse? It's incredible that our willful, selfish behaviour can actually make God sad. God cares about community. Let me, um, let me finish with one final point. It might take us a little while, but it is the final point. Um, and here it is. Um, from Paul's point of view, ethics always works from the inside out. That was the illustration of the pump, wasn't it? In Christianity, you cannot impose good behaviour on people It has to come from within. And that's the whole point of this section here. The heart needs change. There's a process involved in that. But it is to do with the insides, not the environment. So, I just want to look with you at these last few verses as as we draw to a close. Verse 31 is very interesting. Paul paints some weird pictures here to contrast the old person that we should be putting off and the new person that we should be putting on. Okay? So the old person, verse 31, is a verse that we could easily skip over. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I mean, that sounds like a mess of a church to me, does it to you? <laughs> Get, I mean, is this what it was like at Ephesus? 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I mean, who would go to a church that had those things going on? It sounds more like a saloon bar. Um, Well, we're just going to pause and look at this verse briefly because the words Paul chooses are important. And um, so, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. Um, I've brought a washing line. Um, and I'll, where, where did I put, oh, I brought some strength and some pegs. I need two volunteers here to just hold the washing line because I didn't bring any washing line. So maybe Sam and uh, Rich, if you, if you grab one hand, can you grab the other hand? Always good to have the uh, illustration. Um, here, here's, here's the trajectory. Uh, and this washing line needs not to be level, okay? So your, your bit needs to be higher. Going down, okay. So they, that's great. That's great. Uh, is this going to work with the microphone? Who cares? Um, okay. So first word it pulls us is the word bitterness. Okay. Bitterness. What Paul means by the word bitterness is the kind of resentment that we were talking about earlier that festers because disappointment's there. Hard-hearted resentment. I am going to get even. It's festering inside. Then, he uses another word, which is the word rage. So we'll put this on our washing line as well. And this, I mean this doesn't happen to everyone, but by the word rage, he is really, I was going to put pictures on these, I ran out of time. He's talking about the initial explosion. You know, this is like, I've had it off! And it, there's, a, there's an explosion. Bosh. That's rage. Sorry if you just woke up there, Miss Josephine. The third word Paul uses is the word anger. And this is a different thing. This is really about the kind of gnawing hostility that then grips the heart. It starts with bitterness, then there's an explosion, then there's kind of a settled gnawing hostility. The difficult word is the word brawling. So, brawling, I think, is an unfortunate translation. It's a hard word to translate the word brawling. Um, the, the NIV says brawling. Three of the other versions I looked at used the word clamour. What, what I've written there, this is about a lack of restraint that leads to angry yelling. Can you picture that? This is people who have been through these three stages and then they come face to face when I used to work at the mark, we used to talk about, oh, they were at it toe-to-toe. That, that, that's the thing, toe-to-toe. Nobody wants to back down. And they're literally yelling at each other's faces. That's what the word brawling implies. There's a trajectory here. Bitterness. Temper. Gnawing hostility. Shouting in each other's faces. And then, it doesn't end there. Paul says, and every form 
what, what is malice? Malice is the desire. If I could get my hands on them, honestly, I would wring their necks. And we gossip about them. We want to we make ourselves look good and the other person look bad. There's, there's nasty intent there. Can you see the direction of travel? Paul picks these words deliberately because he's trying to... He's not saying that all the people in Ephesus were like this. What he's saying is, if we let this faster in our heart, this is where it's going to go. This is the old person. This is what human nature does if it's unchecked. It goes down. It's miserable. It's unhappy. And it destroys community. I think we can uh, let that go now, Gart. Just put it on the floor, yeah. Just... They'll dry. <laughs> We've literally hung our dirty washing out in church, haven't we? How about that? What Paul is describing is the progression from inside the heart to outward behaviour. This is how conflicts escalate. They always begin in the heart. In in the book of James in the New Testament, chapter 4, very practical book, we should study James sometime. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What a great question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but don't have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The Bible's pretty scathing, isn't it, in places? What causes quarrels? It is never the issue... It is always a matter of the heart desire. The direction of travel is from inside to outside and it's downwards and destructive. What does Paul say by contrast? Very quickly, verse 32. That's all the stuff we should put off. And then Paul says, be kind and be compassionate to one another forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave you be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God Kindness, one writer says, is one of the purest forms of the imitation of God. How would it be if God were the kind of God who was always making snide or bitter remarks at us? What would worship and prayer be like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs? Putting us down to others. How would we feel if we thought we couldn't trust God to tell us the truth? Or if he was always losing his temper with us? How do people feel about us if that's what we're like? Wouldn't it be better in every way to be like him? Kindness. Compassion literally means tender-hearted. 
It's a contrast with the hard hearts of the pagan Gentiles. The hard face of the old person. And the idea of forgiveness, we're back where we started really. Paul says, forgive one another because God has forgiven you. Love one another because God has loved you in Christ. Bless others because God has blessed you. The basis for Christianity is always what God has done, we reflect. Paul says in verse 2, verse 1, sorry, chapter 5, you are dearly loved. Do you think about that? You are dearly loved. Precious, unique. This is the God who forgives you who calls you into his family, who gives you a place at his table, there is no need to lie. There is hope in your disappointments. You do not need to be addicted to your stuff. And you can be free to love one another rather than compete. Is your heart grasping chasing, striving and you've begun to think it's all so unfair your heart is hardening and self-centeredness is making you miserable inside God promises to take away the stony heart and give a new heart that is tender like his I entitled our time together today Enjoying God Together and that is exactly where Paul goes at the end of this section verse 19 speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs sing and make music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ it all begins with God and it rebounds him like a great big massive boomerang And the two key marks here of God's people are thankfulness and in verse 21 reverent submission to one another. Christians are not people who stand on their rights. Christians are blessed by God and therefore free to bless one another. Look at verse 2, chapter 5. Christ was not taken against his will he gave himself up as a fragrant offering in this letter it's as if Paul is blowing a great big fat trumpet in their face even says in verse 14 wake up O sleeper rise for me it's like he gets his trumpet and goes right in their face wake up that's the whole tone of this chapter stop stumbling around in the dark and come into the light I want to call you on Christ's behalf to this if if you are not yet a true follower of Jesus start now do it today If you will have him as your king, 
he will welcome you into his kingdom. Tell someone. Tell others. Come and share with others your desire to be new like his. Get involved. Come and be part of Christ's new community. And to those of you who are followers of Jesus, Paul says you were taught to put off the old, to be made new, and to put on the new. Do not let bitterness take root. Be thankful. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen.